Go ahead and be seated. All right, so uh, in order to organize the study, I wanted to do it in, in a kind of a Q&A fashion. Not that I'm going to be asking you questions and then answering them. That, that would be chaos at Calvary Chapel. Uh, I'm going to ask the questions and then we'll answer them. Okay, from the text of Scripture, um, I don't really have a lot of opinions for you. And if you've come to Calvary Chapel, uh, I guess I'm fairly opinionated, but I try to stick to the text itself. So here are the questions. What is the Old Testament? That is the covenant. Who are its constituents? That is, who is obligated to keep, to obey uh, the terms and conditions of the Old Covenant? And is, it, is the Old Covenant an extension or is it an addition to the Abrahamic Covenant? Next one is, what was its purpose, the Old Covenant? When did it expire, if ever? And then the conclusions, or we might say the implications of um, what we discuss. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so let's start at the top. What is the Old Testament? What is the Old Covenant? Now, when I say Old Testament, I do not mean all that is contained in what we call Old Testament literature. Okay, we have to separate what we know as Old Testament literature from what the Old Testament is in itself. Okay? The Old Testament literature consists of Genesis to the end of each of the Gospels. To the end of each of the Gospels. Um, comes as a surprise to some people. They typically think of the Old Testament as Genesis through Malachi. Excuse me. Uh, Genesis through Malachi, but that's not actually the case. The Old Testament literature, uh, the, the account of the Old Testament people is from, Gen uh, not, it's actually not even from Genesis, it's from Exodus 20 to the end of the Gospels, that is to the crucifixion of Christ, as the author of Hebrews argues very strongly. Um, you know, um, I, I realized that, you know, at the end uh, of the book of Malachi, and before Matthew chapter one, you have that page between them. What does it say? It says the New Testament, the New Testament, okay? Implying that everything before that page is Old Testament and everything follow is New Testament. Uh, that's, it's incorrect, it's misleading. Realize that when the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, he, he didn't slip that page in there, okay? Now, it's, a, it's a theological inaccuracy, but it's just difficult to slide it in like, it, you know, like Matthew 28. Okay? This, it's just hard to do that. But we need to do that when we think in terms of the Testaments, the Testament itself. Um, the Old Testament era ended uh, when the life of Jesus ended at Calvary. Okay? That's when it ended. And by his blood, he ratified the new covenant. That's going to come in uh, later teachings, not this morning. But the Old Testament, which is the same as saying the Old Covenant, okay, because those terms, covenant and testament, are used synonymously by Jesus and the authors of the New Testament. The testament itself, or the covenant, is confined. Okay? It's confined to a specific section in the Old Testament literature. Okay, it had a beginning somewhere, and its conclusions were solidified within that section. So when did the Old Covenant begin? When did it begin? The author of Hebrews, he reminds his audience that the Old Covenant, which he calls 
The first covenant was dedicated or it was inaugurated with blood. Hebrews 9.18, he says, therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. It was dedicated with blood. And so a covenant of this kind that we're talking about is not in place and it's not binding on its constituents until the terms and the conditions are stated, okay? And the agreement is then ratified in blood. This covenant was ratified in Exodus 24, verse 8, when Moses took the blood of the offering and then he splattered it on the people. Could you imagine me doing that today? There would be nobody within a radius right here. Okay. Things have changed. Amen? And this is what Moses said. This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. That is the terms and the conditions. This is the agreement, okay? And this is the blood that ratifies the agreement between us. Now, the language of Exodus 24, verse 8, does that look similar to you? Does it remind you of anything? Yeah. At the Last Supper, when Jesus took the cup, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This is my blood that is opposed, as the author of Hebrews said, to the blood of animals. And this is not rededicating the old covenant. This is ratifying, it's inaugurating something brand new, as the word new means. So when Jesus went to the cross, he ratified the covenant with his own blood. And that'll be explained further later. So the Old Testament The old covenant did not begin until Exodus chapter 24, verse 8, when the blood was sprinkled. And then the rest of the terms and the conditions were given from that time until the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy actually, uh, we call it the second law. Uh, Remember Israel in the wilderness after it was given in Exodus and Leviticus, they didn't do so well in numbers. And then The covenant was reestablished with them. So the Deuteronomy is the second law, but it's the same law. It's just restated again. And the terms and conditions stated within Exodus 20 to the end of Deuteronomy, that's the full terms, the full conditions of the Testament, the covenant to which the children of Israel agreed to. They agreed to it for them and for their children after them. So the Old Testament consists of everything commanded in Exodus 20 through the end of Deuteronomy. Or we could say it this way, all that was delivered at Mount Sinai by God to Moses for the people of Israel, that is the Old Covenant. That is the Old Covenant. Okay? Everything else from Genesis to the end of the Gospels is a body of divinely inspired literature that we call the Old Testament. But... All of that literature is not the testament or the covenant itself, okay? The old covenant is the agreement at Mount Sinai. So listen carefully to this. The covenant, or sorry, the literature contained in Exodus 20 uh, to the end of the Gospels is the history of the old covenant people, the old covenant people. But the record of Genesis through Exodus 19 is the history of God's people prior to the old covenant. That's important when you look at the covenants, 
Who was alive at the time? Who was not alive? Okay, so before I move to the next question, I want to give you a number of biblical names for the Old Covenant. Because as you go through the New Testament literature, you see these terms, these titles thrown down, which the people of that time took for granted. But sometimes people today read those and go, is that a different covenant than this one covenant? Or which covenant? What's, what's he talking about? Well, all of these are referring to the same covenant. So when you look in the Old Testament, it talks about the testimony from Exodus 25 and elsewhere. That is the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai. And then the, the, the title, the Old Covenant itself, 2 Corinthians 3.14. Uh, interesting, as I said, it's the only time that the covenant of Moses is called old. Now, the author of Hebrews says that it is old and that it's wearing out and becoming useless, but he doesn't say, call it by name, the Old Covenant. Same idea, though, in both. It's frequently called the law. The law, you can find that all over the New Testament. The law of Moses, Luke 2.22. Those are just a couple references for a couple, for a few of them, one for a few. You can find those terms throughout. Don't get thrown by them. If you see those terms used, it's the covenant at Sinai. That'll help you interpret the text itself. Um, yeah, let's get on to the next question. I gotta make sure I overwhelm you before you leave. This is an important question. Who are the constituents of the Old Covenant, the Testament? That is, who is it that belongs to the covenant, that covenant? Who are the people uh, that are under its jurisdiction or under obligation to keep its terms? The constituents of this covenant were those, we would say, present at its inauguration, those who were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Remember, they couldn't go up the mountain. Uh, they had to create a border around it. And anybody that went past that line, anybody remember what was supposed to happen? To be shot with an arrow. You don't want to cross the line. I've never been shot with an arrow, but I could just imagine bad days. Those who were at the foot of the mountain agreeing to it, as well as those who were born subsequently into it. That was part of the covenant. It was to those who were present and to their children who were born after them. You had to be born into it, okay? Those that were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai agreeing to the covenant were the children of Israel. That is the physical descendants of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? Now, as I've studied the Old and New Testament theologies, I've always been grateful that the New Testament authors never refer to me as a child or a son of Israel, but only a son of Abraham. Romans chapter four is a, a place to study in that regard. And then Galatians chapter three. Yeah, Israel is always an ethnic concept in the Bible. It's always a national concept. But being a child of Abraham has spiritual significance and implications added to it by the Holy Spirit. Paul says that all believers are sons of Abraham through faith, we've studied that so far in the book of Galatians. Through faith, we follow, as it were, in the spiritual footsteps of Abraham who trusted God for justification. He's the father of all who believe. If you're a believer in Christ, uh, you're a child of Abraham. But nothing is said about us being related to Israel. We have no physical relationship to them. We have no spiritual relationship to them unless you're a Jew, okay? That's it. And that's to be addressed later as well. 
So if the Israelites are the constituents of the old covenant, what does it mean for those that were not present at Mount Sinai or born a Jew subsequent to that moment? So our question is two-part. Who are the constituents and who are not? Who doesn't belong to this covenant? Let's answer that. You remember when Paul, went, Paul and Barnabas went to Lystra, there in Turkey, called Asia at the time. Paul, uh, he healed a man, and then the local pagans said, well, he must be a god. And so they decided that they were going to offer a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And then when Paul and Barnabas realized what in the world was happening, they said this, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nations in the Bible is always a reference to Gentiles, to Gentiles, not Jews. So in the past, Paul says that God allowed the nations, the Gentiles, to walk in their own ways, to do their own thing. In Acts 17.30, Paul referred to this time of bygone generations as a time of ignorance that God overlooked. That's Acts 17, verse 30. They were overlooked by God. They were left to their own ways because they were not in a covenant relationship with God. No covenant relationship. They were left to their own ways. It's also confirmed in the Psalms. Psalm 147, 19 through 20. God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and judgments to Israel. God has not dealt thus with any nation, and for his judgments, they have not known them, the Gentiles. God's word, his statutes, his judgments were only given to Israel, okay? The Gentile nations were left to themselves. They were overlooked. Paul says that the Gentiles were without Christ, being alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The Gentiles were strangers to the covenant. They were aliens. Also, Nehemiah, he implies that the law of the Sabbath and the rest of the, the, the law uh, given to Mount Sinai was only to Israel, but it was revealed to them for the first time. He says, you made known to them, that's Israel, your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. So if the Sabbath was known, if the Sabbath was known, why would God have to make it known to Israel at Mount Sinai? God revealed it to them at Mount Sinai. It was revealed, okay? If it was known to anyone, you would think that it would be known to the children of Abraham, right? I mean, you would think. But it says that uh, Nehemiah is saying, no, they didn't know about it. And apparently, Abraham was unaware of the Sabbath, as were those before him. The Sabbath was only revealed to the Jews at Sinai. No one in the world was keeping Sabbath before them, and only the Jews were keeping it after that. It was made known. Also, in Romans 1, 18 through chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says that God was only known to the Gentiles by way of their conscience, their moral conscience, 
and by, by way of the evidence in the created world. That's the only way. He was not known to them by covenant. Or in theology, we talk about two different kinds of revelation. We talk about special revelation, that is when God reveals his word through the scriptures to mankind. And then there's general revelation. Special revelation was to the Jews. Of course, it's to us now in the new covenant. But special revelation originally was to the Jews and general revelation was to everyone. That is conscience and what may may be known of God in the creation. So by their conscience, Paul says in Romans 1, or Romans 2 rather, that the Gentiles knew right and wrong and that right was better than wrong. And they knew about God by the evidence in creation that he is, has eternal power and deity. Now that's not saving knowledge, but it's still knowledge. Deity, it means uh, divinity, that, that which is God. Yeah, for sure. So the Gentiles were never, ever the constituents of the old covenant. Not only is that the case, but God and the people of God in the Old Testament, in that literature, never tried to make the Gentiles subject to the Old Covenant. That is, they weren't evangelizing the Gentiles to bring them into the covenant. Uh, I've heard that before from uh, various Bible teachers. Uh, I'm looking for a single verse in the Old Testament that says that their job, their duty, as being constituents of the covenant was to evangelize the Gentiles for it. There's not one. Now, they were called to be an example, but not evangelists. That is a new covenant principle. And you see, they never did that because they were never told to do that to the Gentile. Okay? There's no evidence for any of that. In fact, God in the Old Testament never accuses the Gentiles for violating the covenant. And if they were in the covenant, they would have been violating it, don't you think? Yeah. Also, God never punishes them for violating the covenant. Never. You can't violate a covenant that you're not a part of, and it would be immoral to keep somebody accountable to a covenant they haven't agreed to. God only punished the Gentiles for the violation of their conscience. So the Gentiles were never constituents of the old covenant. The only people of the covenant were the children of Israel. That is those that were rescued out of Egypt and then the descendants of theirs that followed. So that covenant is a Jewish covenant. Now, a Gentile, it's true, could be a convert to to Judaism as a proselyte, as a proselyte. But the covenant itself, the terms laid down in Exodus 20 to the end of Deuteronomy, uh, restricted the degree of a Gentile's membership in the covenant. He could never be a full member of the covenant. Uh, A theologian said, the Gentile proselyte remained a second-class citizen in the religious community of Israel. There was nothing he could do about it. The law restricted him from enjoying all that was offered in the covenant. So God's intention for that covenant was to be Jewish. Also, those Old Testament persons who died before the covenant was established in Exodus 24, they were never obligated to the terms of the covenant. Now, we've addressed that in Galatians. The law came some 400 years after Abraham, 400 years. And Paul says that where there is no law, there's no transgression. So you can't transgress a law that doesn't exist. And it didn't exist for Abraham. It didn't exist for Adam, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Okay, they were exempt from it. 
So the constituents then were those born, or rather present, at Sinai at its inauguration. Another question. Is the Old Covenant an extension? Is it an addition to the Abrahamic Covenant? No, it is not. Okay. There are those who believe uh, that every covenant in the Bible is just an expansion or addition to an earlier covenant, and that there's continuity among them. Okay? That, that, it's a mistake of, of interpretation. As we see in Galatians 3, 15 through 17, Paul was comparing the Abrahamic covenant to a common covenant of the day. That's so people could kind of understand his illustration. But he says this, he says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. No one sets it aside, no one adds conditions. So in the context, Paul demonstrates that the the Abrahamic covenant cannot be added to and it cannot be set aside by another covenant, not the old covenant, which he refers to as the law. When the old covenant was established 400 years or so later, uh, there's no addition. It can't annul. Okay? It's, it's a separate covenant altogether. Now, what we find when we look at uh, throughout the Old Testament literature, we see that the, the covenant to Abraham and the, the, the covenant of the law, they run parallel, but they're never combined. Okay? They're parallel. So in short, the Abrahamic covenant, among other things, was God's unconditional promise to give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. But the old covenant was the guarantee that Israel would be blessed in the land as long as they kept the covenant. You see, getting the land was granted. Getting it was granted. Being blessed in the land was conditional. You understand the difference? One is if then. If you obey, then you will be blessed. Oh, you'll get the land. But enjoying it? That's conditional. (laughs) And that's what we see God doing in the Old Testament when he disciplines them for violating the covenant. They're removed from the land. So the two covenants are distinct. They run parallel. And they'll do that. They did that at least for a time. Next question. What was the purpose of the covenant? This is probably uh, one of the ones that concern people the most. And there's a lot of confusion out there. Okay. Now, first of all, by this question, I do not mean what was the purpose of the sacrifices in the temple, which were meant to foreshadow the perfect sacrifice of Christ for the sins of the world. Neither am I referring to the Sabbath, okay, or the other things related to the Jewish calendar, which also pointed to Christ. By the covenant, I mean the covenant proper, the covenant proper. That is the Ten Commandments, okay? The Ten Commandments are the actual covenants the foundational terms and conditions. Let me demonstrate that to you before I move on. Moses said this in Exodus 34, 28. He said, God wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. What's the covenant? This interaction is is not going well. (laughs) Let me give you another one. Deuteronomy 4, verse 13. So God declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets. What is the covenant? The covenant is the Ten Commandments. That's right, okay? So what was God's purpose for the Ten Commandments? The law. 
Now, Paul asked this exact same question in Galatians, and then he, by the Holy Spirit, answers the question for us. Now, before I get into that, I want you to understand something. When you engage with people theologically about these particular issues, you're going to have people give you a lot of answers, but make sure that they're answering you from the scriptures, okay? I engage with people on, about this issue all the time, and I get a lot of strange answers. And I say, well, that's a nice answer. It's just not a biblical one. What does the Bible say? What did God say about his covenant? And what purpose did he prescribe for it? If a man prescribes a purpose for God's covenant, how good is that? Just say it. Say it's worthless. It's worthless. It's not for us to define or prescribe things. It's for God to do that. So here in in Galatians 3.19, Paul says, what purpose then does the law serve? What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. It was given to Israel because of or for the sake of transgressions, okay? Now, a transgression is, is willful disobedience to a known regulation or boundary. That's a transgression. The law doesn't make our behavior, our bad behavior, sinful. It doesn't do that. The law doesn't cause sin, okay? Sin is sinful all by itself. Law, especially when it's posted, makes our sin a transgression, okay? For example, I gave the same illustration to first service. If you go to Hawaii, and my wife's from Hawaii, so I got some experience with all this. If you get invited to a Hawaiian's home, and as you enter that home, you notice it's posted clearly on the door, Please remove your shoes, mahalo. Not a huge deal in Western culture. It's a very big deal in Hawaiian culture. You see the sign, you understand the sign, but instead of removing your shoes, you ignore the sign and you just walk through your host's house. You have then committed a transgression, a transgression. The sign said, please, in order to be courteous, but it wasn't really a request. And so next time you visit Hawaii, you are not invited to that home because you are a transgressor and transgressors are not welcome. You've offended your host. The law is similar. The law is similar. But because the law is God's, transgression is against him. He's the one that's offended. The covenant brought Israel into this relationship, a covenant relationship with this holy God And therefore, it was necessary for Israel to know clearly, intimately, when they had transgressed and offended their God. It was necessary. In fact, in the New Testament, when Paul talks about the function of the law, bringing the knowledge of sin, he uses this kind of, it's a kind of appalling, specialized word. It's not just knowledge, uh, gnosis in the Greek, it's epigenosis. He like, it's like knowledge on steroids, it's experiential, it's it's full knowledge. He says that's what, that's what the law did. But there's a purpose for the law that is bigger than this. That is one that God says is there. There's another one that Paul refers to when he says this, Galatians 3.24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Now, As we discussed earlier when we were studying that particular passage, we learned that the translation tutor 
or schoolmaster uh, does not really accurately represent the Greek word. Okay, now I, I really don't know why translators have perpetuated uh, that translation. It, it, it's weird to me. The Greek word is uh, paedagogos, and a paedagogos was a household slave. The law was like a household slave, Paul says, whose duty it was to watch over his master's son, to be the child's custodian, and to ensure that he got to school and to other places. He was not a teacher. He was not a schoolmaster or a tutor, but a disciplinarian, a disciplinarian, a, a custodian. He was a custodian with a paddle, if you will. The law of God, as he intended, was to lead the sinner to a place of recognition that he was sinful and that he was condemned and that his only hope for justification was through faith in Christ. That's the purpose of the law. Now, for the sake of time, I want to provide you some other references that you can study on your own regarding God's purpose for the law. I've given you Galatians 3.19. Another one is Romans 3.19. The purpose of the law is to stop the mouth from justifying itself, from justifying sin. Romans 3.20, it's to bring the full knowledge of sin, that it is, it's vertical, you guys. It's not, sin is not on a horizontal plane alone. We don't just sin against our fellow man. When we transgress, we sin against heaven, against God. Paul says that the offense of sin might abound. That's the purpose of the law. To make sin exceedingly sinful, Romans 7, 12 through 13. The idea is that when, you know, when, when man looks at sin, especially his own sin, we have a way of diminishing it, right? It wasn't that big of a deal, unless you, unless you committed it. The law acts like a magnifying glass. What happens when you look through a magnifying glass and then you draw the glass away? It enlarges it. Paul is saying the law is like that when, when in our heart is observed by the law. It's like a magnifying glass. We think it's petty, but then God draws it back by the law and that it makes it exceedingly sinful. Sin abounds under the law. Its clarity from God's perspective is revealed. And then the last one, we discussed that, to lead the sinner to Christ for justification by faith alone. Let's go to our last question. When did the old covenant expire? Now, of all the questions so far, the, the biblical answer to this one is the most controversial, okay? But how the scriptures answer the question, uh, I believe, is as clear as anything in the scriptures, okay? The anticipation of the old covenant's expiration is initially stated in Jeremiah 31, okay? Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not, it is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, says the Lord. Now, the establishment of a new covenant implies, at least, the expiration of the old. Okay, now, this was further anticipated in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. To fulfill. Now, the destruction of the old covenant and the Old Testament prophecies, Jesus is saying, that's not my mission. I haven't come to destroy them. His mission was to fulfill them. 
So Jesus, when he came, he came and fulfilled many, or actually all, of the Old Testament prophecies referring to his first coming. He has some more to fulfill in his second coming. Okay, he'll, he'll take care of those, trust me. Okay. But he fulfilled everything referring to his first coming. And in the same sense of the use of the word, it says that he will fulfill the law. And he did that by obeying all of its precepts perfectly. Jesus didn't violate the law ever. He lived a perfect, sinless life from God's perspective. Okay? So he obeyed the law in its entirety. But he also did something else. You understand, the law pres- prescribes obedience, right? You shall do this. You shall do this. You shall not do this. You shall do this. But the law also prescribes punishment for disobedience. Jesus fulfilled that as well. He was never punished for his own sin. But Isaiah 53 and Peter both say that the collective sins of the world were imputed to Christ and then he was punished for them on Calvary's cross. And that's, of course, where we get the gospel, is that when we exercise faith in Christ, when we trust him in his atonement and his resurrection, my sin, your sin, is transferred to Jesus and then he's punished for those sins in our place. And upon faith, then, the righteousness, the innocence of Christ is is imputed to us. So Christ took our sin, he was punished for it. We receive his righteousness, and then we're rewarded for it. Okay. Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. And when he did that, he expired the law's usefulness, at least as a covenant. Okay. Now, this is made most obvious in, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, where the author tells us that the new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete, saying it's, it's canceled it out in its entirety. Now, some people object and say, no, only the ceremonial laws with the sacrificial system were made obsolete. Well, you can say that all you want. People say anything they want if you've been on the internet. But without the authority of Scripture, it just isn't true. Hebrews 8.13 says this. In that, he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So he says that by the establishment, the establishing of the new covenant, God has made the first obsolete. Now, the word obsolete does not mean destroy Jesus didn't come to do that. It means useless. So the question that has to be answered contextually is what is the first covenant? What is the first covenant that has been made obsolete? Context has to be king on this. The first covenant came along with the high priests of Israel who were the ministers of the first covenant. That's verse three. That's how specific the author's being here. The high priests were only prescribed for the covenant at Mount Sinai. He also says the law of Moses. That's the terms of the first covenant. Verse 4, that's all of chapter 8 in Hebrews. Moses, the mediator of the covenant. Verse 5, he says the first covenant is the covenant with flaws. Verse 7, and then he says this is the covenant that God made with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. Verse 9, which consisted of all the precepts in the law, chapter 9, 18 through 19. Now, the precepts spoken of in Hebrews 9, 18 is a direct reference to Exodus 20 through 24. A direct reference, 
okay? When the Ten Commandments were given, nothing else can be rendered from the context. Not nothing else, okay? So any other conclusion, any other interpretation is either dishonest or it's uninformed, okay? Nothing else can be drawn from that. So the first covenant is the old covenant. It's the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, which includes, as the author of Hebrews says, every precept according to the law. So the idea that it only fulfilled the ceremonial laws or the sacrificial laws is incorrect. It fulfilled everything, the Ten Commandments included, okay? And it has to be because the Ten Commandments, what are they? They are the covenant. They are the covenant. God, according to the author of Hebrews, has made the first covenant useless. In, in agreement with the author of Hebrews, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that the fading or the passing of glory of Moses' face, you know, after being on the mountain with God, he says it represents the Ten Commandments passing away and coming to an end, at least as a covenant, okay? Now, I, I can't cover all of 2 Corinthians 3 with you. You'll have to study that on your own. It's on the web, too. I've gone over that passage or that chapter before. And then Paul adds some details to the expiration date. Uh, earlier, I, I put Galatians 3.19 on the screen, but I didn't give it all to you because I didn't want you to get ahead of me. But here it is. He asked the question, what purpose then does the law serve? He says it was added because of transgression till, now that's King James and New King James, all other modern translations say until, exact same thing, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The law was added because of transgression until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. In the context, who is the seed? It's Christ. It's Christ. The law then would only serve its purpose until Christ came, and then it would be made obsolete. Paul reinforces this again to the Ephesians. In chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Christ abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. And by the way, the Greek word for abolished does not mean destroyed. It means rendered inoperative. Rendered inoperative. On the cross, through the sacrifice of himself, Jesus rendered the old covenant inoperative. That is, it's no longer a covenant in operation. It has expired. Jesus anticipated all of this when he took the cup and he gave those sobering words. He said, drink all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. We know that the cup represented the blood of the cross, Jesus' blood. And here and throughout the scriptures, it is that which expires the old covenant and then ratifies, inaugurates, if you will, a brand new one. So because of Christ, the old covenant is inoperative. So the question at this point is, you know, how do we conclude all of this? What, what are the implications? What does it mean for us in this era? We would say the new covenant era. In John 1, it says the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We're in a different covenant. So what does all this information mean for us? I do not have time this morning to look at the implications. So... Uh, that's what we'll do next week. And uh, we are in a covenant relationship with God. And it's important for us to identify which covenant. 
Okay, so we want to make that clear. And then what we're going to do is we're going to look at the benefits today, the benefits to us of the Old Testament. That is, what ethical wisdom can be drawn from the Old Testament for those living in the New Testament. We're not in that covenant, but the Old Testament literature is very important to us. Amen? Okay, so we want to look at the Old Testament uh, through a new covenant lens, which will let Paul and the other authors of Scripture do that for us. Okay, we want to also look at what can be known about God from the Old Testament. He has not changed. There's not a God of the Old Testament, as some modernists say today, uh, and a different God in the New Testament. Same God, okay? same attributes, same behavior, all that stuff. Okay. So let me just quickly review with you uh, 30 seconds here. What is the Old Covenant? It's the Ten Commandments. It's that which was given at Mount Sinai to Moses to give to the children of Israel and to their descendants that follow. And they are the constituents. Gentiles, never. Okay? In addition, uh, is, is the, the Old Covenant an addition to the Abrahamic Covenant? No. No. What was its purpose? transgressions, and to lead the sinner to Christ for justification by faith alone. When did it expire? At the cross. At the cross. When the new one was ratified. The author of Hebrews says, a testament is not in place until the death of the testator. That's why the Old Testament didn't end until the death of the testator. Amen? Yeah. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Um, now, you, uh, we can engage after the service. You can send me a ton of emails, or you can wait until we're done with next week's discussion. Uh, but if I said something here that you have questions about, feel free to engage with me after service. I'm always available for that. And, uh, or if you just want clarity, or I don't know, maybe you disagree, that's fine too. I, I'm a big boy. I can handle disagreement. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the new covenant, this covenant of grace that, that is filled with terms and conditions. It's just a different one. It's a better one, as the author of Hebrews says. It's, it has better promises. Uh, everything about it is better, better sacrifice, a better hope, and on he goes. And Lord, it's, that's what we really want to discover and enjoy is the benefits of this new covenant that is in your blood. Uh, more than just justification and forgiveness, Lord. Lord, I pray that um, you just continue to use your word to instruct us, to draw us close to you. Lord, the purpose is not simply to be informed, but that we would be drawn to you and that we would live for you in a way that pleases you. And uh, so, Lord, grant us your grace, your spirit to do that. Lord, I thank you for my church family. I do ask that you would just lavish your grace upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.